welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're going to have David Harvey with us, anthropologist and Marxist geographer. He has a new book, Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. In less than 200 pages, David Harvey both explicates Marx's work in his three volumes of Capital and shows why it's relevant to 21st century audiences, addressing the continued process of globalization by referencing Marx's work. Harvey succeeds in showing how and why Karl Marx's writing is written as if it was for our present moment, and that despite the fact that it was written in the 19th century using language of that time, it's a living, breathing document with a huge influence on contemporary social thought and economic theory. We're going to get his analysis and ideas on this edition of Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have David Harvey with us for the first time. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology at the City University of New York, grad school, and he is a very well-known Marxist. I think his YouTube presentation of Marx's idea has been viewed at least a million and maybe more than that times. Is that right, David? Yeah, there's been a lot of downloads. I don't know how many people stick with it, but it's so successful. But you could say that what you have accomplished throughout your writing career is to make Marx's ideas understandable for today. And that's what we're going to talk about, because David's latest book is called Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. And it's just been published, and in less than 200 pages, David Harvey both explicates Marx's work and shows why it's relevant to 21st century audiences and even addressing current issues and making it understandable why, for those of you who read Marx, you can see it's written as if for our present moment. And I wanted to just say that at the start of your book, David, you refer to a couple of recent biographies of Marx, and this will go to what I had just said, by Gareth Stedman Jones and Jonathan Sperber, which aim to understand Marx historically by placing him biographically in his own time and in a detailed way. But you say these books are good as far as they go, but they kind of make Marx very much a 19th century man and not so relevant for now. And your contention is really the opposite that Marx's theories, concepts, etc., provide a real source for understanding the present. And the job is to kind of illuminate it, as you've done in this book. So maybe you, you could begin with this, that your goal in writing all of these books, some 18 books, that the aim is to show how his theory and concepts are living. And even by going in this volume through Capital, three volumes, and the Grundrisse, and to elaborate and develop them so that they can make use for today. So just to go forward, we're going to try to go through some of those. And maybe we should talk about finance first, because you're one of the first ones, David Harvey, to focus on the centrality of finance. And in particular, in your 1982 work, you want to insist to radicals and Marxists that the positive role for finance in accumulation and in developing capitalism. But today, you could say that was then, this is now, there's a different role. So maybe you can talk about the two aspects of finance and what you see as accounting for the shift of emphasis for necessary support for capital accumulation to a mechanism as it is now under neoliberalism, shifting income and wealth to the rich. Well, one of the important things we could do is if uh, we have an idea and we want to do something, and we need some money to do it, and we haven't got it, we can borrow the money. And if we're successful, we'll be able to pay the money back. Now, that is 
we take on debt, but we redeem the debt by doing some productive activity. And that's the positive side of it. And Marx actually says that this is one of the great things about capitalism, that people can do this. So you don't rely on inherited wealth. So you can manage to borrow the money from somebody and off you go. And that's the very positive side, as Marx saw it. The negative side comes when there's a lot of money lying around in banks and pension funds and things like this, and they look around and they say, we want a way to return on this. And so they push the money out and they push it to people, and people borrow the money, but they can't pay it back. And then uh, the debt can't be redeemed, and then the question is, well, uh, what happens then? And one of the things that happens if you can't redeem the debt is you often borrow more money to pay off the debt. You use credit card money of one sort to pay off bills with another credit card. And so we actually then get this spiral of debt. And if you look at all the data around 1970, the world started to set in this kind of spiral of debt where we were borrowing more and more money to pay off the debts of uh, yesterday. And so... Actually, we had this sort of debt crisis of 2007-2008, and one of the ways we got out of it was by actually creating more money and lending more money to get out of it. So that's the negative side, that we all get caught up in owing more than we can possibly earn, and that then condemns us to what I call sort of debt peonage. And uh, society has a way of creating that debt peonage. For instance, students borrow money to get a degree and then spend 15 or 20 years to get it back because of debt is a, a claim on their future labor. And so we increasingly find ourselves imprisoned within this system of debt peonage, and that's the negative side. I know that you write a lot about the city. You're a Marxist geographer of sense. So, and I think you talked about like the urban crisis and things that led to the predatory lending in housing. And now we're seeing kind of the flip side of it, that now it seems that they're evicting people at an astonishing rate in order to keep making money off of the debt. Can you talk a little bit about the way that these things kind of turn into even more plunder? Yeah, this is one of the fascinating things. I mean, the crisis of 2007-2008 really began by excessive borrowing and speculation in housing markets. And now we've got a situation where in almost every major metropolitan area in the world, we've got an astonishing expansion of investment in high-end housing, a lot of which is not lived in. A lot of it is just sort of bought up for speculative purposes. So you get the building of empty structures at the same time as there's a crisis of affordable housing. Now, if you need space for those new structures, you've got to evict people from the space clear the way for this sort of urban investment. And so what we find is a very rapid increase. After the foreclosures of 2007-2008, we've had an explosion of evictions which are going on. And it's not just in some of our major cities, but you'll find this going on in Sao Paulo, you'll find it going on in, in Vancouver, you'll find it going on in Melbourne, you'll find it going on everywhere. Because low-income people are, in a sense, not welcome in the cities because they can't pay the higher level of the rents which need to be there in order to finance the kind of building that's going on. 
That's so fascinating because, in a sense, if you just think about it, then all of these high-end places are being built. And in New York, I know one of the things you read about a lot is how many of these are built for Chinese investors who never occupied. And while there's a huge homeless crisis, there's a lot of empty buildings. But you're saying that, in a way, that it's to push ordinary, I guess, working class and and I guess those who would like to the precariat out of the cities. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think in New York City, for example, and I think this is terribly true in Los Angeles, San Francisco, we have an explosion of homelessness. You know, about a third of the children in New York City are technically homeless. They're sort of uh, couch surfing um, on relatives' sitting rooms and so on. And a lot of it has to do with they don't have the income stream to be able to afford rents, which are, say, three or $4,000 a month. I mean, if you're trying to get past on, uh, say, $30,000 a year, that's your income, or $50,000 a year, you can't afford that much in rent. So people who are living in, say, rent-controlled apartments and things of that sort, uh, the capital wants them to get out of the way. And uh, one of the ways you do that is by finding ways to evict them. And there are all sorts of legal ways and quasi-legal ways and illegal ways by which that is done. But let me give you just one example. You have a big housing complex in Oakland that was taken over by one of these private equity companies, Blackstone. And it wasn't doing very well financially. Blackstone borrowed all the money from the California pension fund and wants to give the pension fund a good rate of return. The only way it can do it is by evicting all of the low-income tenants of this housing complex and turning the housing into upscale market housing. And it turns out, so, of course, that some of the people who they evicted were actually pensioners from CalPERS. So ah. here's the ridiculous thing, where in order to keep your pension in good shape, you have to, in a way, accept your own eviction. I mean, this is the stupidity of the contemporary economic market. Okay, that's really interesting. And in that vein, David, your book is wonderfully titled Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. It's published by Oxford University Press and came out just at the end of 2017. But you can find it and you can read it, and I think you'll be able to read it, even though it's going through very technical aspects in capital. But Marx was a very good writer, and David Harvey's a very good explainer of Marx. But one of the things that, you know, you've just been talking is about the way that finance has turned since uh, the period that Marx was writing. And another way that I'd like to bring up is the area of monopoly, because it's not, of course, as much as finance, but it's also been a continuing theme in your work. And again, a place where there's been a shift kind of analogous to the shift on finance. And so in your earlier works, you emphasize temporary monopoly profits that accrued to the capitalist innovator, but as having a critical role in enabling technological change and then, of course, labor productivity growth. But part of that idea was that monopolies would be temporary and that a new entrance into the lines would gradually wipe out the profits, rather. But now... Today, it seems that this has shifted again, and now we're starting to see kind of predatory rip-off aspects of monopoly in transferring money to the rich and backed by the state. Maybe, can you talk about the interrelation of these two different aspects of monopoly and the shift in emphasis that's taken place maybe since the 70s? Marx generally uh, worked with the idea of a competitive economy, which was not dominated by monopolies, but he also recognized that competition tends to produce 
monopolies because competition is about the survival of the fittest. At the end of the day, there's only one or two companies that are the fittest, and so you'll always end up with a monopoly kind of situation. And I think that one of the things that happened in the 1970s is there was a suddenly a great emphasis upon competition, and there was a period of rapid competition, which it almost, you know, within about 10 years, had started to produce more and more monopoly power. And now it's gone even further. And you take an area like pharmaceuticals and so on, and, and they have monopoly control over pricing. And we've seen all of this problem of how drugs get priced by pharmaceutical companies and how big pharma is pulling in huge profits from raising prices because there's no competition for those drugs. And then the state comes in and bars us from importing drugs from Canada or from India or Brazil and the like to protect those monopolies. So the monopoly side of things becomes terribly important, in part because capitalists under conditions of real fierce competition have a hard time. And it's kind of peculiar because capitalism is supposed to be a system that thrives on competition, but mm-hmm. individual capitalists hate competition. They all want to be right. monopolists as they possibly can. And there's every strategy in the book to try to preserve their monopoly power. And, of course, one of the ways they do it is by branding themselves so that, you know, there's nothing like a Nike shoe or there's nothing like this kind of toothpaste or whatever. So the monopoly side of things becomes more and more important unless something happens to break the monopoly power. And, of course, one of the things that happened with uh, opening up the globalization was there was suddenly another kind of competition entered into the situation. So you've got Chinese products coming in and the like. So the history of capitalism has been about kind of phases of being dominated by monopoly, followed by phases where competition sort of reasserts itself, and then it goes back to monopoly again. But I wanted to ask a question about that, because now we're seeing, of course, in the Trump administration, slapping on tariffs, a form of protectionism. But in a way, it seems like the way that you described the state coming in and maybe now backing the monopoly, say in the case of Apple, through intellectual property rights, really, that was a form of protectionism. And now this new tariff thing is kind of antiquated. Do you see it that way? And maybe could you explain how monopolies being backed by states in the way that they always help the capitalist class? There was a time when capital was really operating within the territorial state framework, so that if you went back to the 1960s, you could talk about uh, monopoly power in the automobile industry, and it was essentially the big three in Detroit. But then by the time you get to the 1980s, you have German cars, and you've got Japanese cars, and now you've got uh, Korean and the like. So the state, in a way, was a protected space in the 1960s. And that protected space created the possibility for the monopolies within that space. The spatial barriers break down after 1970 or 80, and you start to get a different uh, relationship. And then there comes a kind of question of, well, when you make an automobile now, you can have the engine from Brazil, you can get the hubcaps from the Philippines, you can get the gearboxes from uh, Mexico uh, and you assemble it in Detroit and so if you start putting tariff barriers on the state borders you start to get a real mess because there's nothing made in this country that doesn't have a high level of, of imported parts and vice versa and I think this is what Trump is running into he thought that somehow or other by putting tariffs on things he would be able to solve the problem but we've seen him 
take something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. which he kind of said, oh, the terrible, terrible deal, the worst deal in the possible world, da 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 They're raping us, I think realizes, you said. Yeah. Oh, my God, no, it's not. I mean, we're actually, actually, we can't do this, so we're going to have to back off. And so I really don't think that this stuff about protectionism is going to go very far. And so then we enter into this news phase, I guess. It's really quite astonishing. I just want to let the listeners know I'm speaking with David Harvey, a distinguished professor of anthropology at the City University of New York Grad School. And he's been writing books on capital and capitalism for a long time. And the latest book is called Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. And that's just out by Oxford University Press. And we're talking about that and taking off and really going to the heart of what David says is that Marx and his work Capital are not relics of the 19th century, but written as if for today so that we can understand what's going on today. And we've just talked about that in relation to both finance and monopoly. And I think this other area that we should go into, David, is neoliberalism. It's implied in everything that you've said so far. And many Marxists, me included, didn't even like the term, you know, wanted to just say this is the natural development of capitalism. But it's taken hold, and it does have kind of new features. So can we start with how you see neoliberalism, how you wrote about it, let's say, earlier, and maybe how you're revising some of your ideas or bringing them up to date in the way that neoliberalism in the post-war period, I guess, really from the 70s and 80s onwards, which was to create the ability for a huge transfer of wealth to the 1% or the 0.001%. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Well, I see neoliberalism as a political project that emerged in the 1970s because the situation during the 1950s and 1960s has led to a certain empowerment of labor. Mm. It also led to a great deal of state intervention in the management of the economy. So we had something that we often refer to as embedded liberalism, that is, you have a sort of a capitalist economy, but it's operating with all kinds of chains and restraints around it. And that worked very well, actually, uh, with high taxation rates. In the 1950s, the highest tax rate in the United States was something about 90%, and yet you had the highest rates of growth uh, that's ever been seen in the United States. So there was strong growth in 1950s and 1960s, but a lot of it was associated with the empowerment of labor, and when things got a bit difficult in the 1970s, the upper classes suddenly found themselves having a real hard time maintaining their wealth. At the same time, there was this climate which was sort of anti-corporate. Uh, the students at Santa Barbara buried a Chevy in the sand in yeah. protest against environmental stuff. Uh, they burned down the Bank of America building. So there was a lot of anti-corporate legislation like environmental protection, consumer protection, all that sort of thing. So in the 1970s, a bunch of people started to say, hey, we've got to get out of this because we're losing our wealth. We need to reestablish our wealth. So they really launched a counterattack upon that form of society. That's why I call neoliberalism a political project. And mm. you can trace it pretty well in the 1970s. And, of course, the political project, in a way, got out of hand and got legs, and it's, it continues to this day. And the thing that fascinates me is that we had a sort of a brief period of... Uh, not anti-neoliberalism, but soft neoliberalism, if you like, during the Obama administration. But if you get past all the huffing and puffing that's going on in the Trump presidency, what's he doing? 
He's getting rid of all regulations. That's a good neoliberal thing to do. He's sort of stopping uh, all of the restraints on uh, mining on federal lands and drilling off the coast. He's uh, getting rid of all that regulatory apparatus that curbs the financial sector. A tax uh, bill that is essentially a bondholder's charter which channels lots of wealth to the upper classes. This is pure neoliberal politics. And I think the problem is that, you know, everybody's so mesmerized by all of this nonsense that's going on with his tweets and, and all of the kind of scandals and so on that they're not seeing that actually we've seen a real strong restoration of the neoliberal strategy through the Trump administration. I think this is really great, David Harvey, because the other aspect is that you said that this was a project that came about after we saw the growth of a labor movement that actually threatened capitalist profits. And maybe that's arguable in different places, but a strong labor movement was something that they didn't intend to create in the post-war boom. But now... I guess you've got it neoliberalism on steroids using other language. So Trump says he's taking us out of trade deals, but then recognizes he has to take us back in and then says what we're really doing is just getting rid of red tape, which you just described in getting rid of all sorts of regulations. But he's also creating tremendous resistance. And now we're seeing in deep red states, you know, where Trump states, the public sector coming out and challenging the state to raise the floor of funding and not just about their own wages, but to actually improve, to take away the cuts that have been in place since at least the economic crisis. And I think this would take us to sort of your last point. And maybe we can do it in a dual sense, because you talk about alienation and how that's changed in your book, Marx Capital and the Madness of Economic Reason. And you use the fact that where people were revolting, let's say in the 2010-11 period of Occupy and Arab Spring, that they were revolting in places that weren't necessarily immediately affected by the economic crisis. And you attribute that to other reasons. And then maybe we could look at what's happening right now and get your view of, is that like the end of that kind of alienation? How do you see it? Well, just to complete what I was saying before, one of the great projects of the neoliberalism was to concentrate much more wealth and power in uh, the top 1% or the upper classes, if you like. And, of course, one of the things that's happened since 2007-2008 is that crisis is that all of the data show that actually the rich have got incredibly richer since then, and everybody else has been sort of left behind. Now, the social inequality... The lack of environmental protections, you just go down the whole kind of list, that's likely to generate a great deal of discontent. Now, the discontent is difficult to find a focus. And so one of the things that happens with alienated populations, people start to kind of go, well, politics isn't helping us. Really, I I don't think Hillary Clinton would have done much better for us than Donald Trump would have done. And so you kind of get that sort of distrust of politics. And you get uh, alienation from uh, many of the major institutions in society that are supposed to stabilize the world around us. So uh, what that does is to create a society of, of people who are resentful. 
in some degree of the situation for a variety of reasons. And then what happens is that something crops up, and we saw that in, say, the London riots mm -hmm. four years ago, where you know, a sort of event happens, and suddenly all, all the people are rushing around, and they're burning down shops and, and that. And we've seen Gezi Park in Istanbul. We've seen Brazilian cities erupting. We've had our own Occupy movement. And so we start to see all of these kinds of movements of discontent, which are not very focused in the sense that they're saying, okay, we know what the alternative is that we're going to construct. It's just movements of anger, people wanting to tear things down and to make something different. And I think a lot of the vote for Trump was uh, alienation. In fact, in some ways, I would call him the president of alienation. Uh, and in a sense, uh, I don't think he could have got elected had the large chunk of the U.S. population not been alienated. And we're seeing the same thing going on in, say, Hungary uh, and Turkey and so on, that people get so sort of angry and that they say, bring in a strong man who's going to actually save us. And I think Trump was very good at saying to that population, I am your voice and I'm going to give voice to, to your anger. And we now have a pretty good idea of what that, that all means. So in the midst of that, then, there is uh, the other side of it, of people looking around saying, well, this is not the kind of people we are. This is not the kind of person I want to be. And, and so we're beginning to see a search for an unalienated existence. And uh, it's fascinating. You find all these little groups around in cities who are kind of setting up little communes and saying, we just want to have a different social relations. We don't want to be part of this kind of awful capitalism that we've produced. So there's a lot of kind of sense of discontent and revolt around, and but we've not seen it coalesce into a massive movement that kind of says, okay, here's what the alternative is going to look like, and this is what we're going to drive for. But you do say in your book, and you point to the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, and I would say, too, that while there is this alienated anger, there's also a remarkable lack of cynicism in the young people coming up today and a kind of positive view that they can create giant movements to protest the present. And you saw it like in the high school students, you know, in response yes. to the shootings. And maybe let's end on that, on what you think of the movements today. Do you see this as the sort of beginning of a new upsurge that will really challenge the status quo and have some idea of what the future is? Oh, I think there is. There's no question about it. I mean, in a way, uh, Trump uh, has done the left a favor of kind of saying, all right, you know, we've got to do something very different. What I would be concerned about is that that energy which is there will get corralled into a restoration of the preceding order. For example, a Clinton restoration or something <laughs> of that kind. And that won't work because there was a lot of frustration with that. And so I, I'm very nervous. I see local groups doing things, a lot of energy, a lot of, the, you know, we want to do something very, very different. But I don't think anybody has really figured out how to turn all of that energy into something that kind of says, look, we have to really confront neoliberalism. It's not just a matter of getting rid of Trump. And the big neoliberal in our recent history was, in fact, President Clinton. Right. And so the Democrats are not going to give us the answer as they're presently constituted. So this is the danger and difficulty to me, that in exactly the same way that Obama mobilized a certain energy about how we were going to change the world, and then that sort of 
fed into certain disappointment that there was not more radical change than many people, I think, hoped for, uh, that we would see a same repeat of that. But maybe people will be aware enough this time to say, no, I'm going to revolt against all this Trump stuff, but I'm not just simply going to go off and vote Democratic and hope that that solves the problem. Well, I have to then ask one final question, David Harvey. Given that you're English and you've got Jeremy Corbyn poised literally, I think, to win the next election and to be an open socialist labor leader and already facing really virulent attacks, calling him an anti-Semite. So you can see that he seems very, very threatening. Do you see this, though, as some sort of response to politics in the traditional parties that reject the neoliberalism of the Clintons, in other words, Corbyn and Sanders? I mean, I don't think the Corbyn is the same as Sanders at all, but I think that the Corbyn phenomenon is fascinating and interesting. The difficulty is that the Labour Party is not solidly behind him. <laughs> and in fact, he's got a great deal of personal respect in the country. He's got a great deal of uh, following in the country. But the Labour Party is not solidly behind his politics. And there are a lot of people in the Labour Party who want to stab him in the back. And that will make a great deal of difficulty for him if he actually gets into power. But on the other hand, I think there's something special about the Corbyn phenomenon, which is a traditional party, the Labour Party, that has at least half transformed itself into something that is really very different and is talking about public ownership of all major utilities and everybody in the country says, yeah, that sounds like a sensible idea and different kinds of tax stuff and all the rest of it. So, yeah, personally, he's very progressive, but I'm not convinced at this point that the Labour Party is going to be the instrument that's really going to make the transformation happen. Well, I want to thank you for all of that and wish that we could go on for another hour. Yeah. For those of you who are out listening, run out and grab this book, Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason, and see how David Harvey takes the ideas of Marx and makes them relevant for you to understand how to challenge a lot of the obstacles that we're seeing today. That's Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. And David Harvey is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at the City University of New York Graduate School and has written a whole gazillion bunch of books on Marxism that you can Google. David Harvey, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. And I'm Susie Weissman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Weisman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Weisman. Mm-hmm.